And we're on. Well, we're going to do like our 18th AI podcast. <laughs> I had some people listen to the podcast for the first time and said, oh, I didn't know it was so much about AI. I will now listen to it because media is boring and stupid. That's all the hmm. tech people think. <laughs> That's my differentiator, Alex. Media yeah. and AI. True. Used to be media and crypto. Oh, God. Oh, fuck, yeah. We must talk about AI, I guess. We will talk about AI, of course. It's everything that everyone's talking about. They're super interesting, guys. It's super interesting. I like it. I like you when you get excited about things. Yeah. I like you less as a sort of conspiratorial left-wing sort of agitator, anti-advertising. I like right. you more as like AI enthusiast. I'm turning around on advertising. I think if we're going to have a media company, we should try to make advertising work. You you rock my world this week. Welcome to People versus Algorithms, a conversation about patterns in media, technology, and culture. I'm Brian Morrissey. I write the Rebooting Newsletter and host the Rebooting Show podcast. Each week, I'm joined by longtime media executive and investor Troy Young, writer of the People vs. Algorithms newsletter, and Alex Schleifer, former head of design at Airbnb and founder of Universal Entities. The experience of much of modern publishing has been one of jumping from one burning platform to another burning platform. One publishing veteran once told me that it was a game of leaping to a new audience pool before the measurement catches up. It's hard to believe anyone convinced themselves those fleeting three-second views of Facebook videos meant much. And now publishers are rushing into TikTok's arms and they clearly have strategic amnesia. This never ends well, but you might as well get while the getting is good, I guess. Much of the media is focused on winning intent and engagement I mean, that's why Gawker boss Nick Denton and BuzzFeed's Jonah Peretti recently admitted that the perverse incentives of the last era were to generate unique users instead of page views. I think what they were getting at was using shorthand for the fleeting impressions instead going for loyalty and depth. This is what I was trying to get at once when I was trying to come up with a concept around primary engagement media. And many times, depth is misinterpreted to mean keeping someone captive on a web page, for instance. I mean, this is what leads to the harebrained notion recently that the homepage is poised for a comeback. I mean, any plausible notion of where media business goes next does not involve massive amounts of people waking up one day and deciding to use the internet like 2004. It just isn't happening. One area, however, that deserves revisiting is what John Steinberg, a BuzzFeed longtime executive co-founder, described to me as ambient media. John was launching Cheddar at the time, and I was extremely skeptical, to say the least. But John is perhaps the most compelling salesperson I've ever met. The pitch that John gave me for my question of who is going to tune into Cheddar, who is going to seek this out, on a random OTT channel was around ambient media. And because John reasoned much of media is ambient, it's CNBC on without the sound, it's talk radio, it's Bob Ross painting watercolors, and it's behind much of what I think is the underrated power of a medium like podcasting. I mean, I've been around long enough to go through three or four cycles of is podcast dying? It's all peaks and troughs. Cutbacks in the funny money era of podcasting, like the millions thrown at celebrities, have given the impression that podcasting is again dying. But on the contrary, I don't think it's going anywhere. Because podcasts offer a depth of engagement, even if it is ambient. Many would knock ambient media as mere background filler, but its presence in the background builds loyalty. I regularly hear from people who listen to this show or my other podcast about how they multitask with it. 
And I think that's really valuable. The numbers on both shows are smaller than newsletters, that's for sure. And they're harder to monetize because there's no way to get people to click. And it's ambient, so people by definition are not in action-taking mode. But there's a wrinkle to this as we discussed in this podcast. You know, AI is coming, okay? And AI is really good at delivering just the facts. Anyone who uses ChatGPT can see this. But it's not really good at making connections and connecting dots, more importantly. I think that's what humans still are really, really good at, is taking ideas from one area and applying it to another. And it's something that we try to do on this podcast all the time. And I think with the onslaught of synthetic media, there's just going to be so much filler out there. And I think ambient media is poised for a bit of a comeback because it asks just enough of the audience. And I worry sometimes that too many times brands, and I've seen this over the years, ask too much of their listeners or their audience. You know, they want the world to revolve around themselves, but that's just not how it works. So this week, Troy, Alex, and I discuss ambient media through the lens of what is coming with AI. And of course, there are various other digressions and detours. This is a human podcast after all. Hope you enjoy it. But let us, let's start, let us start. I feel like I'm starting let us a pray. religious ceremony. It's like how my dad like began like grace. <laughs> we should actually, we should begin the podcast with grace. And let's start with just the week in, in AI from Alex Oid's perspective, because every week, many new things happen. And some of us mere mortals who are out there, I don't know, trying to sell ads and whatnot, we, we don't have time to keep up with this stuff. So at least the things that stood out to me that happened this week is more prominent people coming out and being like, pump the brakes, which again, sort of leads me to be like, are we sure we really want to go down this path or do we have any other opportunities? But what stood out to you this week with how these models are developing in the environment? Alex? Me? Yeah, you. When you say these models, what do you mean? It's the week in AI. We're starting out with a week <laughs> in AI. Because honestly, it all blends together for me. This is all moving a little bit too fast. I turned 50 like a few weeks ago, a couple months ago, I guess. And I've reached the age where technological advances are just coming too quickly for me to process. It's moving too fast for everyone, buddy. Talking to people on the inside of these companies, they don't really know what's happening. But the interesting that's happened this week was this leaked memo from Google and also some numbers that are coming out from OpenAI about the cost of running this thing, which is making it feel like maybe these companies are spending an inordinate amount of money trying to run these highly generalized systems like ChatGPT and it's costing them a bundle and training the models are costing them a bundle. Meanwhile, the technology has left the lab and is out in the wild and people People are building these very kind of robust, smaller models using stuff like Hugging Face that are fully open source so you can kind of access and build stuff with it. These things are both costing these companies a ton yeah. of money to run and they might not be as defensible. There's no moat, right? That was yeah. the, the thing. And so that's so been really interesting. I thought that was like fascinating. The fact that ChatGPT, OpenAI could lose $540 million last year and they might lose $100 billion in the coming years, which on, on the one hand, it's like, oh, wow, this is crazy and a real risk to the, the development of this. But on the other hand, I just think they see this as a giant moat that Silicon Valley loves this because they've got access to massive amounts Come of Come on, capital. man. The and stakes is up. high, Brian. The stakes yeah. is high. Okay. Well, these guys are really good at being monopolists, I've found. Not to be all Elizabeth Warren. 
are in. No, I, they, they, they are, right? And they completely changed their tone of being open source. What the, What is going on here? What is going uh, on yeah. here? It's Elizabeth Warren time. Get on board. I don't want to. Here's an interesting thought, though. Folks like OpenAI are putting a lot of money into building this generalist AIs that can do a lot of stuff. And that's placing a bet on that. While the thousand different startups are looking at very specific uses for AI. And there is a hypothesis that if a company managed to do general artificial intelligence, like truly general artificial intelligence, then that kind of becomes the everything app. It, it has a potential of gobbling up so many pieces of SaaS software and so many of the tools and interfaces that we use that all these other little kind of projects coming up will feel like excursions that just get gobbled up. Let me give you an example. If you're building a SaaS software that kind of manages data in a certain way, and you're building this very specific tool for someone and OpenAI offers a generalist tool that you can open in your own company. And Brian, you can tell it, you know, I have a small media business and I needed to do this. And here's how I managed my accounting. And here's what I need to do for my taxes. Go out and figure this out. And it comes back with a tool that does that for you. Wait, then, those are the agents, right? Yeah, I mean, agents. So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that they're trying out, agents, plugins, and all these terms. Are put, this in, around, put, but it's, put this in big phone type, Alex. Brands, what does that mean? Are you saying that because I got my readers? That's no, how old no. I am. I got okay, readers hold this on. weekend. Have you ever watched a Star Trek episode? Yes. Like a couple. I'm not a sci-fi guy. Well, in, in Star Trek, sometimes you'll hear like Geordi or something tell the computer, can you please build a thing that runs this and does that? Yeah, yeah, and that. it goes off and does that thing. Generalist AIs could really upend like all the software market. At the same time, on the flip side of that, maybe the chasing of this general AI might be a huge money pit that never leads to anything. And actually what we should be doing is like building specific use cases. Can I add some perspective yes, to this? Of course. Please. So I know Troy, you haven't said anything. It's like 12 minutes in. It's a record. Go on. Hi, my name is Troy. I'm a drug addict. You know, the consumer interface points, which we talked a little about last week, tend to consolidate into one or two players. It happened in search, it happened in social, and even it, a generalized tool that approaches AI or that approaches intelligence, assuming the company does not implode at that point and we all die, becomes on the margin the place that a consumer will spend time because it, it's the best and will have more people developing around it. It will develop network effects because because on the margin it's trained better, more people will build around that ecosystem because there'll be more plugins, more people will use the API because it, it has more to offer. And so it is a little bit of a winner-take-all thing and therefore justifies a lot of investment to get out front. In some ways, I think that AI is like HTML in a way. It's going to just kind of be everywhere. So small models, open source models will proliferate and people will use them in all kinds of bespoke ways, trained as needed against data sets to do all kinds of process-like activities that support all number of business activities. So I don't think it's an either-or. I do think that the notion that open source models are a threat is, I take it with a grain of salt. And the reason is this, is because first of all, well, OpenAI has an extraordinary lead. They're already out marketing their APIs. It's a brand that people recognize. Consumers will feel comfortable there. They're leading the conversation around AI. Google, on the other hand, is just an immense amount of surface area from Android, from Gmail, from search itself. They can augment AI queries with a search index that nobody really can duplicate at this point with the same level of accuracy. And then they can commercialize it all and they have an enormous 
this ad marketplace on the back of it, which is going to be required on some level to trade for a sort of attention positions inside of this new vortex. In short, the winner will make, as Alex suggested, it can tie together so many activities and take a toll along the way that it is worth trillions and trillions of dollars. So it's worth the investment. The other thing that came out this week was a Google engineer. It was a memo got leaked saying basically that Google. That's has what he's no talking more. about. Right. Okay. Wait. That's what you're talking about. That, that's like, what we're who, talking about. I mentioned it alongside some of the cost numbers from OpenAI. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm speaking about. That's okay, what I'm, I'm challenging saying. actually. But I thought you were saying it's going to be completely centralized with a few players. No, I'm saying that the leaked memo was hyperbolic and it did point to a proliferation of open source models which could challenge Google's and OpenAI's position. But I think that the commercialization of that for consumers and the ecosystem around it will still be controlled by Google, Microsoft, and OpenAI. Yeah. Is it any different from the open source stuff? I remember like when I first started doing some reporting on technology, Linux was was coming up and it was like, oh, this is going to destroy Microsoft and Red Hat was trying to commercialize it and the reality of open, yeah. open source was that for-profit enterprises figure out a way to use it to their benefit at the end of the day it doesn't I don't know like the technical details of this but I, I've just seen these like stories be told again it's like oh people can do this and this and this the reality is if I think I can speak for people they're generally lazy and the truest thing said about tech is no one wants to run their own server isn't easy well enough. hang on hang and, on just to be clear when we're talking about like Linux and Ubuntu and stuff like that this was like maybe the consumer operating system versus these open source operating system. But a lot of the stack of what we use every day is built on open source software. So open source software did win. Android, the back end of Mac OS, all of these things are built. So parts of the stack are very much open source and, and they're very important to the way we're building things, which means that thankfully in some parts, one company doesn't own the ability to launch a web server or something like that, right? A lot of this stuff got open source, which allowed the web to proliferate and software and stuff like that. Most pieces of software have some component in it that's open source. Uh, anything from like video formats to image formats have been made open source, at least some of them. I think there's going to be, it's going to be very interesting. Also interesting that nobody's mentioning Apple, but Google I.O. is going to be interesting this week. It should come out by the time this episode is out. It should happen by the time this episode is out. But I do feel like here's the issue with the moat. If Google right now has a huge advantage because of the way its search engine works, and it was the best search engine, and it completely upended anything that was available at the time, the one thing they still do have is they still do have a bunch of eyeballs on that thing. If I had Google v OpenAI, I think long-term Google does win because it's everywhere. But it's going to be interesting to see how these, all these players work at cutting each other out of stuff. Apple's going to come out with something and Apple's going to say, hey, we, we're going to completely divert all the search traffic to our own AI. Apple's going to suck at this just like Siri sucks. Yes. I know you're a fanboy. I, uh -oh, it's just like this. Out. It's just like, it's coming out. there's some things some companies don't Siri. do. Well, yeah. If they couldn't figure out iTunes, they're not going to do this. I tweeted this week how exceptionally bad Siri was at a product. I was in the car with my son and I asked it to play a song from a video game and it started to play this like non-radio mix of a song with a lot of very rude words in it at full volume. Is he is okay? Great. Oh yeah, he's fine. Okay. He might not like so, your vaguely Central European accent. Yeah. The other, the other thing is, it's just kind of you are where you are. There's a lot of great people at Microsoft, but their software is kind of icky. It always has been. 
Someone initiated a Teams call with me this morning, and I was. Oh no! Were they European? Put, no, but I mean, European actually, they were. Teams. They were. As Steve Jobs said, they have no taste. He Europeans was in Zurich. That's why. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's like that with Apple. What's the last great software Apple made? I just can't remember. Keynote is the last great software they made. And Preview. Preview I like a lot. I think Apple still knows how to make stuff. They need to do something. I mean, everybody thought that Apple couldn't build their own processors, and yes, they they destroyed everyone with the M M chips. Hey, Brian, if we're going to kind of wrestle... Once we get into M chips, I'm going to pull us out of the M chips. Yeah, Um, for sure. This like, Are we having Robert Scoble on next? (laughs) What what is going on here? This is a media podcast. You can't discount Apple because they've been able to build processors that are like incredible. They'll figure this shit out. But back to media... but, but hold on. Can we talk about ad It'll networks? Be, it, no, no, no. <laughs> but here's the thing, Brian, if we wrestle AI corner from Alex. So I was trying to. You asked about the stories it. of the week. One of the story of the week was that getting cheggy. Yeah. Because it'll be interesting to watch the chips fall, particularly with public companies that are impacted in the quarter by AI and watch their market cap fall. Okay. But real or perceived, anyone who's, who's going to miss is going to blame AI. Okay, a couple things here. So let's just double click on this, as they say. First of all, I have to give the boneheaded move of the week award to the CEO of IBM who came out and said, AI is going to mean we don't hire people in the future. I mean, why do you even need to come out and say that? And 7,000 jobs will not be hired because of AI. And by the way, we're IBM, we're the AI services company that made Watson that did nothing. So just like to me, it was ridiculous. Doesn't that sound to you a little bit like, ooh, we got to say something about AI? <laughs> we don't have yeah, shit. It, yeah. yeah, and we're not laying yeah. people off. We're just not hiring them. So that that's yeah, that was fantastic. ridiculous. Fantastic. Secondly, the Chegg thing was Can you explain was interesting. Chegging? Yeah, they're textbook y- y- services. It has right? tutoring services, textbook rental. They'll help you with tutorials, stuff yeah. like that, right? It can, so they it, help, it can help you cheat. Basically. They help students. They're not popular with universities, right? Not that universities should be popular. Okay, but, but they help, the value proposition is they help you excel at university as a student. Now, we know that students are early adopters for technology. One would think they're all using ChatGPT to write essays and all that kind of stuff. So they start using ChatGPT more often and it's free unless you buy a $20 open-ended subscription. So it's free and it starts to impact Chegg's results. The market sees this, guides their results lower, and a billion dollars, pretty much half of their market cap is taken off kind of overnight. It feels like it's the first big kind of public example of a company that's been dramatically and immediately impacted by AI and by an early adopter segment. Of, of the market. I think it's interesting because I think it's kind of a warning to anybody whose business, like I work with a lot of media businesses and everybody, particularly ones that are sort of funnel related, Brian, like that are really dependent on the, the search engine results page. And they're all like kind of paralyzed. They're like, what do we do? What's going to happen? How do we insulate our business? Is our traffic going to fall? Will people start to use chat instead of pages? What's the value of a page? There's a lot of questions. Right, what can they do? That's what I'm saying. I mean, saying that you feel a little helpless because per Alex's earlier point, if the chatbot does what it's meant to do over time, it eats a huge amount of the value chain. Now, let's just say that you are what? 
an insurance company that sells pet insurance, let's say. You need business, you need leads, you need to go to either affiliates or you need to buy search traffic or you need to do SEO or advertise on Google or whatever to get more business. That's the modern way. Are they going to go directly to ChatGPT or Google in the future, upload all of their policy information to the AI and cut out all the other people that pull levers to get traffic to sell those products? And so anybody in that middle layer that sits on top of Google and between someone who wants to buy a customer effectively, there's a huge amount of anxiety right now. I don't really know what you can do other than say, we are going to be an insurance company ourselves. We're going to create our own policies. We're going to try to get on the plug-in list with ChatGPT. Something. You got to try something. Yeah, I, I'm reminded of early on in reporting when Google was becoming all dominant and every company I would meet with would be doing something that Google could do. And I would always ask them, won't Google just kill your business? And they'd be like, wow. Google's not the competition, it's the environment. This is the environment and you have little control over it. You just can sort of try to make your way as best you can. The difference with that, Brian, is that that situation required Google to set up a team, build a product yeah. definition, get people to design it, integrate it. Now you just need the customer to have a need and to build their own tool basically off that. And that's, that's very disruptive yeah. potentially for a lot of stuff, especially for media, I think, because right now I can create my own media bot and I'm not logging on to any news sites anymore. Okay. That's wonderful. Do you think that's a thing though? Media bots? Are they yeah, useful? Yeah, 100%. Can you describe for the audience what a media bot is? Well, it's not even a media bot. With ChatGPT, with web access, what you can do is basically make queries and the agent will go out onto the web and figure stuff out. And so now what you can do is like, hey, find me the top 10 headlines, compile it with all the pertinent information and exclude anything political or sports related. And it will go out and a minute What's later come back out. You can <laughs> you can have something that's tailored to you. And guys, let's remember, what are you comparing it to? I know you guys love this, but... Alex is rubbing his hands with glue. I just want to let the... No, the I'm... I'm He's literally rubbing his hands as your business... This is going to disrupt a lot of destroyed. good businesses. But here's the other option. Oh, I get to a site. I click on an article. It asks me to pay for it. Or there's four ads sandwiching the article. Or there's a thing in between. It's so important that once users start getting used to this, it's going to be really hard to give them anything else. And I think we're just inches away of having this thing read it out to me as a podcast that I can like have as a making breakfast. Mm -hmm. Did you have muesli? But think how disruptive this is. I mean, yeah, nothing. no, it is. But what I wonder is like, when, where is the value creation? Let's just say in media, where, where is the value being created? I hear a lot about value being destroyed. But is any value going to be created? I mean, there's going to be value created by a lot of people and technology. Yeah, for tech. But isn't that the story of media? All the media people get excited about tech, then tech takes all their money, and then they cry there for a second, and they cry on the tech platforms, feeding places like Twitter while they're so upset about media dying. That's while it. This podcast is over. <laughs> it's, 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 <laughs> Alex has summarized the last 20 years in media. So, so here's the issue, and I think I think Troy had Wait. mentioned this many times before. There's a lot of people that will just want to create media for free. That's the okay. problem. Okay, so it's a lot of value destruction. It's cataclysmic, guys. I guess. I guess going back to the the Google thing and whether it's true, like we have no moat. I think the good thing about the media business is that it's been like hammered for a generation. So anything new coming, it's like ah. Eh whatever. Here's some new existential threat. It seems like this is the elimination of any moat whatsoever. 
except of course for a few people that happen to be the major tech companies. Yeah, if media if media is the yellow pages, this shit is Google 20 years okay. ago. And so I wonder Troy sends me this beautiful article about fucking Zelda that somebody wrote and they've got animation, they've got HTML It wasn't about engineers. fucking Zelda. <laughs> it was about Zelda the video game. And I was like, so much effort has gone into this thing and I don't want to read an article that says, "Hey, did you know Star Wars was an important movie to some nerds out there?" Here's like 8,000 words about it. Instead, I'm going to get used to the fact that I get my information like straight to the vein, pure and <laughs> and free basic. Uh, it's exactly what I. It's funny that you said. <laughs> did you read the article, Alex? No, I described it as straight, straight to the vein. <laughs> and I apologize. I, you know what? I kept your identity secret and think because I didn't think it was. Uh, it was place very insulting. Room, yeah. You call you called it your gamer friend. <laughs> who, has, who consumes media like a 19-year-old. <laughs> yes, you make me sound like I live in my parents' basement. <laughs> well, it's the Austrian way. <laughs> he lives on a ranch with various other members of a commune. That's right. Well, that leads me into, like, I can't think too far ahead with this stuff. I can barely think the next week ahead. Because obviously, you know, there have been a lot of this, like, end of an era with, with media and with publishing mm-hmm. more specifically, but about where sort of safe areas are. And it's easy to be like, niches, and I'm not really even sure anymore. But one area that I do think is interesting, and it does play into this podcast, is the idea of ambient media coming back. Because what you're talking about is a lot of publishing is a really inefficient tool for achieving what you say, what you're able to do now with your media bot. And I think that's fine for a certain type of media. But there's a different type of media that's in the background. And I think that's why podcasting, it's gone through a lot of like rough spots in its development. There was a lot of people down on podcasting recently. And I think they were down on a certain type of podcasting, which is cutting a big check to Michelle Obama or one of the royals. Who are those royals who are living in California? Harry Um, and Meghan? Yeah. Yes. And all of that. But the mid-tail, Semaphore had something of podcasting. And I think podcasting will go back to its original roots and be very handcrafted and like human and digressions. I think that's I'm making excuses for my digressions on this podcast. Because when I talk with people who listen to this podcast or other podcasts, one of the reasons that they like it is that it's on in the background. And um, <laughs> You know, and that's why you can have podcasts that are like longer. Whereas I feel like if you are going to be in a world of these media bots and you are creating, like I think about this as someone who types words, you better be pretty succinct. Troy, you got to, the garage door is closing on those 1700 word essays that you're doing. Hmm. I've tightened it up. Thanks to your feedback. No, I'm terrible with that. It's actually a really, just a couple of points I would add to that. I think that the Alex use case teaches me always that people are going to run at the sort of media machine in ways that they find effective and efficient. And I think that there's a simple equation that sort of says amount of content over available attention equals media consumption approach. And that only leads us to more sort of efficiency and more directedness in what we seek out. And like Alex said, maybe the New York Times had something vaguely interesting to say about Zelda, but he just wanted the meat of it and he didn't want to mess around. And the little novelties that were their design approach, he's a designer, he likes it, but I don't mean to speak for you, Alex, but you don't have time for that shit. It's friction. I mean, it's friction. But it's also like I will listen to a gaming podcast that is 
three hours long where people are really into it, just like meander and talk about Zelda in interesting ways. I don't want the New York Times to tell me that. I get it. I also have access to that, so I don't need this. One of the things about this ambient stuff that I found is I brought this sort of mindset to the podcast where I felt like we have to have something important to say and come to some conclusions and deliver sort of service value to the customer. And I think that people have to enjoy kind of intellectually meandering with us and we have to be able to turn on different lights in their cranium to help them see things in different ways. But what's more important or as important as that is this, is that they don't get sick of us, that they like us. It's actually really important, really, really important because I turned off a podcast. I turned off Scott Galloway a long time ago, but it was it was somebody else I was listening to. And I think I sent you guys a text about it that I found that I just didn't want to listen to the person anymore. Just like I wouldn't want to have a cocktail with them. That was as important as what they were saying. So God damn it, you guys try to be more likable on the podcast. <laughs> Is that the feedback? That's why I'm saying that I'm softening my stance on advertising because I know that a lot of advertising executives listen to this podcast and we love you and we love what you did to the internet. You matter. You You're matter. worthwhile. You matter. You have value. After all, people are just numbers. <laughs> no, this came up, Trey, with our mutual friend. We had a drink. I don't know if we're keeping him anonymous or not. Do we need to? I guess. Yeah, I think he'd like a shout out, actually. Oh, okay. Well, Hi, Brian. it's Brian Wiener, CEO of Profitero. And he was saying like that he likes listening to the podcast because he's doing something else at the same time. And he's he's working out, actually. That's how he gets so, he stays so fit. Yeah, he said he was working out. He's working he's out. Guy, he's listening to the, the podcast. And he said, I take ideas and then they're not directly applicable to Profitero's business, but he says it causes him to think and then he applies it to his own context. I don't know if that is a genre of media, but I think that that podcasts in particular are good at that. And I think that that is still going to be valuable because that's not accomplishing a task while you're preparing your muesli in the morning. That, yes, okay, just give me like the information I need that is interesting to me. I think that- Which is to say yeah. that we should all just take a moment and describe what we typically eat for breakfast. Because it's important that we add a human dimension to this. I don't eat breakfast. Now, me neither. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> you just said that you listen to this well, you listen to podcasts while you make uh, breakfast authenticity is also important I have too, a kid Alex. I make breakfast for my kid oh okay oh I thought I thought you were trying to be relatable you're not raising your children to be like flexitarian no or not flexitarian what is that intermittent fasting I guess children shouldn't intermittent fast that, no that's no, no they that's what I do they'll stay small I just had a banana today I thought I'd treat myself and get some energy for the podcast I got some potassium what did you eat Troy what's your breakfast I just had an amazing Amazing sushi lunch. Sushi oh, for breakfast. I like sushi for breakfast, though. Do you have a no private chef? You don't have a private no, chef. No, I don't know. But you guys, why, why are you doing this? Why, are you, why do you keep doing PJ. that stupid shit? I walk down the street to my Look, neighborhood. We need a gradient. We need, like, Brian is a man of the people. I'm I kind am. of in the middle. And you've yeah. got to be the unattainable kind of person that no. people both want to be, but also But hate. it's not true. Yeah. And I don't want to represent that. That's and true. we won't reveal your address for when the revolution comes. because no. You know, no. If anybody wants to steal money they should go to alex's house because he keeps bags of money and gold in his <laughs> yeah, basement trust the and he has a bunch of unsigned system. airbnb share certificates yeah. you can steal my 2019 f-150 anyway um, ambient media i'm very into it and i think just it's a short-term moat i don't think it's a long-term moat i definitely believe that it gets you out of do you mind if i ask you a couple of questions about this why are we talking about it? what is ambient media i don't even know what you're talking about to be honest <laughs> 
We are ambient media. This is ambient media. Brian, do you want? What, can, what, you mind uh, if I try to frame it for Troy? Sure. All right. In a world where, in a world, in a world where that traditional media is being upended by technology in some way or, or another, there is this very specific format, and we've talked about format before, which is this ambient media, which is like slightly longer form. Usually audio, because audio is a perfect ambient format. You don't have to pay attention to it. You're doing it on your bike ride, and your commute, in your car. That's why radio is, is such a great medium. And it's news delivered in a way that is kind of meandering with a lot of different tabs being open in the topical browser and relationships being built with people that are in your ears. I think it's like one of the few defensible spaces that's yeah. left in media. It's not task directed. Remember like trying to recraft SEO as intent media? It's like, I'm trying to accomplish something and I'm just going to shove some affiliate links in front of you. And then like engagement media, which is like, we're going to be immersive. I mean, Trey, you're at Organic when everyone was making those flash microsites in order to like engage customers and stuff. I think that that's all over. I mean, obviously the Flash microsite is long over, but I think trying to immerse people, unless you're building a video game or something that is just a totally different end of the media spectrum, that you have defensibility and just because it takes so much to be able, or maybe it'll change, to be able to create like an immersive video game environment. Whereas typical publishing content, like the reason that I think that Alex reacted so negatively to that Zelda thing is because it was like Snowfall 4.0. And this idea that you want to be immersed in like publishing content when most people just want to get some information and go about the rest of their life. Yeah. Okay, I agree. I agree. Nice one. And just to bring What's... it back to AI for a second, I worry that AI will become really good at creating ambient media. Oh, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> So the only thing that you have left is your charming personality. And, and like Troy said, if people like you. Yeah, but here's the problem. Everyone becomes a caricature of themselves. I mean, every brand becomes a caricature. I don't know if we've joked about it on this podcast. We have Puck as a caricature of itself. And I, I don't mean that as a negative. <laughs> Actually, I kind of do, but not totally. I'm because like I think it's hard to, because you want to be distinctive as a brand and stuff like this. But sometimes the way you become distinctive become really freaking annoying with repeated exposure. I mean, hopefully some of our Layers shine through. I probably I speak the anti-advertising truth like a little bit more than I do in my everyday life. I don't talk about. You this become shit really paranoid about that characterization. I'm finding. I got to well, tell I you, mean... I think I think it's really good. No, I don't think you should be a dick about it, Alex. But I do actually yeah. like it when you go into sort of dick mode. If anything, I'm your friend. I send you an article. I care about you. <laughs> no, you send me back this. one so word. Sensitive. Summarize. And <laughs> I funny. think that I you, you might being appreciate that, it. Yeah. I, I did. I loved it. But I think it's in that command you being, formats. yes, exactly. I think that you being the voice of anti-advertising on this podcast makes us smarter, makes us question what we're doing. It makes us think about the consumer more. I love listening to podcasts where people talk about the news more than I like reading the news. Even if I know the headlines, I like that tech mean drive home podcast where he just kind of basically reads out articles and adds a little bit of flavor to it. And I wonder like more and more if that's just not how I'm going to consume the news. Yeah. Maybe it's because the world is so crazy and everything's moving so fast. It's kind of like helps with my sanity to have somebody go like, what Elon said was weird, right? Rather than just hearing it. I wish NPR did this more like, well, that was weird, right? That's not normal. It just makes you feel a little saner. I think people, there's probably a piece of that as well, yeah, that you feel a little bit seen and heard. I see you. I see you. Mister. I see you. Yeah, shit's weird, right? That's Shit oh. is weird. The other shit that's weird is I now realize, I think that Benedict Evans is a kind of pompous Brit and he... <laughs> 
you know, he he's got a big processor and he can summarize stuff. And he's his new, got a big his, processor. His his newsletter is a worthy read, and he has lots to say there. But on a podcast in ambient media, I think he's an air sucker, and he's not likable. One of the hardest things actually is going across different formats for a lot of people. Just because you're good at like a newsletter doesn't mean you'll be good at a podcast, even though they're kind of related a little bit, I think. You're multimodal. Well, I'm very talented. I think you're good. I mean. you're <laughs> <laughs> no, but you got a sexy radio voice. I like it. It's not my real voice. That's the funny thing. Did you see Tom? I watched the end of the episode and I knew Tom was British, but that still freaks me out when they have like Succession. super, super British accent. Like Sarah Snook is, is Australian. And I'm used to like, I just assume half the quote unquote American actors are actually Australian at this point because it seems like many of them are. But Tom from Succession, he, he's like a different person. Yes, yeah, he, he sounds so I much love, more. Likeable. I love that. I do like this idea though. And we, this did come up the other day. And with all due respect to my brethren, my brothers, my Canadian brothers and sisters, this sort of ontology of accent quality. I would actually put Australians, I love them. They're great people, fun to hang with, but their accents don't really rate for me. Canadians yeah. are maybe just even lower, actually. Well, you seem like you've Heart. softened your Canadian accent. You don't do any like, Consciously. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right? Yeah, but the Brits win on that account. I like even, I like Southern U.S. like Tennessee, I like Texas, I like. Mm -hmm. Brits like Southern U.S. accents a lot. I don't know why. It seems strange. Mm. What do you got? Is that a Philly thing you got going? Stuff uh, like this? Yeah. Is, well, is that's that a, just, is that that's just verbal tics. Well, that's another yeah. problem with podcasts and ambient media is verbal tics. I've got notes about it. Someone said I said tremendous a lot the other day. They just sent me an email. Well, that's mm. why we have a great editor. Yeah, thank you, Vanya. Vanya, if you could cut out the tremendouses. Well, how would you characterize Alex's accent? I like it a lot. Metal Europa. I told you. Yeah, it's very hard to describe my accent. Sometimes I wish I had more of a of a French accent because it's it's kind of like Oh, that'd more, be nice. That'd be hard. Yeah, exactly. Can you say something you know, in French for the is. audience? Something really, <laughs> something sweet? No, that's so weird. <laughs> no, but I don't even believe you can speak French. I'm not your little dancing monkey. Je suis pas ton petit singe qui danse. Uh, no, but this, this is officially the, the best episode yet. You know what I'm doing here on three or four occasions in the podcast? I've dragged us into nonsense land. Oh, I noticed. Uh, out of AI corner. And I'm doing it on purpose because it, it's about ambient media. Okay. Oh, so you brought, it, the, you brought it back. The, no, That's this is about amb this conversation between three knuckleheads talking about very tangential things is the stuff that makes a podcast have kind of, it builds loyalty, I think. I think people want, they don't mind the little side streets and tangents. Yeah. Because it's, to sort of go back to the main human. highway, though, a little bit. Nick Denton, in one of those end of an era podcasts, the one with Peter Kafka, you know, when they talk about, well, what is working? What is the future of media? And Nick Denton was like, TikTok and Substack. I think he meant that. Like, Nick didn't seem to want to be on that podcast, no, to be honest. No, he didn't. I mean, he's moved on. But I think that that's an interesting like framing and that TikTok is about like feeding an algorithm. You're just totally just there to feed an algorithm and to catch the algorithm. Whereas Substack, I think, is a stand in for, and I think ambient media can be part of it, a type of media that's definitely more personal and more human. And if you're going to be more personal and more human, I think you can become too 
niche because a lot of times people try to optimize and you're told to be very focused and it's tremendous value because there's too much generalist stuff out there. But I think that there is going to be an advantage to having media that meanders in some way, but doesn't become meandering, if that makes sense. It does. I think you need to know your limits. There are podcasts that I listen to where it's a couple of writers or comedians and I can hear them talk about fucking different types of napkins for an hour because they're funny and compelling. But the problem is, and I think that's the Professor Galloway problem, right? Scott Galloway problem is that when you think that part of your pitch is that you are funny or that you're edgy and you're actually not, then it becomes disingenuous. And I hope the best thing that we can do, we're not, not everybody's going to like us, but I think as long as we come across as, as genuine, that's the best we can do. And sometimes the advice is be funny, be relatable, be focused, be whatever. It doesn't really matter. Just be yourself. And I love listening to a very dry nerd talk about engineering issues for an hour. And I love listening to two comedians in LA talk about nothing for an hour. It just really depends yeah. on the person. I think that's what I, I sort of meant. I just didn't articulate yeah. it well. Because you know, Nate Silver is leaving ABC News. He's the data guy. Started at 538. 538, yeah. And, and he said whatever he does next... He doesn't want to be like pigeonholed in politics because his interests as data guy go across like sports and gambling and all kinds of other things. And he, and that's where I think when I think of the TikTok versus Substack, that that's where it leads in a sort of Substack world, which is just a stand in for more personal tied to a person. People have different interests. It doesn't mean that all of your interests you should bring. You know, I stopped subscribing to Substacks because I was getting too many newsletters and I it's just like I was feeling anxious that I wasn't reading most of them because I have to read Troy's and that takes up like half the week. So (laughs) I would pay (laughs) I would pay 10 bucks a month for a Substack feature that summarizes all the newsletters and say, this is what Brian's newsletter, this is what Troy's newsletter say, and where I could tell it to like dig into this one and does it over voice. I would love that. So this that is a mistake fantastic. everyone makes when going paid, I think, with Substack is they think they have to give people more, whereas it, I think it turns people off. Like, it's too much. It's fun. also m- why I have that pet peeve that I used to bring to your attention, Brian, which is too much talk in a Substack newsletter about your your process or why you're writing this or what you went through this week is absolutely annoying. And I think that the discipline you should have as a substacker is to kind of deliver the goods. By the way, guys, I should do a word count on my thing. I had a two by two in there this week, Brian. I, I think that, that it was confusing. I gotta say, well, the two by two. You know, really? Well, what's a two by two? Oh, the grid. Yeah, the matrix. Quadrant diagram. Yeah, yeah. All the thing. Maybe after the podcast, I can take you through it, explain the logic. <laughs> Just walk but me anyway, through. yeah, I, I would say that word for word, there's enough value in there for its length. I just want to be in the upper right quadrant. I always want to be in the upper right quadrant. No, you could be in the bottom left on this one because you could be chat against knowledge. That's a good quadrant. But isn't the, isn't the trick that you always want to be upper right? No, I think you can have different... You, you know, know what's great podcasting, can be valuable. guys? is talking about a chart that nobody can see. <laughs> That's the best. (laughs) This is engaging content. All right. Have we hit all the topics? Yeah. Let's go into good product. Do we we have a good product? Oh, shit. You better fucking have a good product. Okay. Can we pause the podcast for a second? Is it going to be like a bagel? A good product is... Are these cashmere socks? Oh, we could talk about my readers. Yeah, those can readers? we actually have like real good product, like something that people can acquire? Okay, a bad product is bifocal lenses. I think they were giving me headaches. I thought I had brain cancer, but I just had bifocal lenses. I have bifocals. I can't 
operate without them. No, but you know the contact lenses. Oh, I didn't even know they did those. No, and they shouldn't. They should never do them because they're like the optometry version of the TV VCR. They're just like shitty versions of both. Yeah, yeah. Can we try to make like a relatable good product? Should we all like the three of us bring a good product? Ooh. It never landed mm. entirely into one specific thing. I don't know which ones work better, but I think people... You mean the feature it. doesn't land? No, no. I'm the just feature. saying we've people never like landed that. we've never landed in clarity as to what it is because sometimes it's... Raisins. Raisins. Like, huh, yeah, they're tasty. You know what I like? <laughs> <laughs> it was figs, assholes. <laughs> <laughs> Or like hey, no, ketchup. No, but now I'm all now I'm all nervous about it because every time I think of something, I'm like, can't do that one. It's a food product, and Brian will attack me. <laughs> I don't care. Well, because products are always they always become like just tech gizmos. But Not I think like a, a product needs guy. to be something that has a brand that has a kind of value proposition for this audience. You know, yeah. I think if it's you know, it can't be like grass, a lemon, yeah, <laughs> oxygen. Well, like yeah, like <laughs> a hard boiled, a soft boiled egg. What yeah. about a Patagonia puffer jacket or a, or a Saab 900 or a... Yeah, I mean, that's, that just like places you in a very specific category of human being and that's where you want to be. That's fine. What about like an old fashioned pencil? What's your favorite streaming app? Like where do you watch most of your content? That's a good question. Brian There's doesn't seem to think Two so, answers yeah. to this. I would say by interface, for sure, Netflix. By content, it's got to be HBO, although they're about to put a bunch of junk in there. The worst in terms of font usage and interaction model is Prime. Don't like it. Although they're trying to up their game, even their sort of station ideas matured slightly. And they tend to be sort of reckless in the shows they make. They make a lot of really mediocre shows. And Hulu, I find, they let some ambitious UX designer wreck it. They tried to make it a little bit too sort of, hey, it'd be cool if we could innovate on the interface and it, it doesn't work for me. So that's a few answer. people that worked on that. It's perfectly fine. It just matters if the content is good. It has to be like, okay, but nobody cares. Nobody cares if they're the font or whatever. It's just like, yeah, I, mean, I, think it should be I don't care where generalized. succession is. I don't care. I would just love if fast forwarding a show would behave the same across apps. Yeah, you said that a couple of podcasts mm. ago. It's a real bee in your bonnet. The other oh, thing, Alex, is. X-Ray on Prime is cool. X-Ray is Amazon's. Who's in yeah. this kind There's of, space uh, for innovation. Uh, I was cool. having a, a conversation on Twitter with folks about this idea of taste and if taste was important for designers because it's subjective. I, I think it is subjective, but I, I think you can also see companies that have very little taste. Like I do think Amazon and Microsoft are companies that lack mm. any taste or artistry and it's very who was making an argument against taste being important i think there's a little bit of a contentious relationship with product software designers exist in a world that is very directed by hard facts and numbers this is how you build something this is what success looks like etc so being the person in the room sometimes that has to say hey listen to my intuition is difficult i always feel like just push that forward lead with it my big question that i would always ask someone is like or a red flag would be somebody saying well how do you know it's good well how do you know if those pants you're wearing are good like you, you gotta have an opinion and i think a, a big problem in silicon valley is that nobody ever got fired for not having an opinion in silicon valley and i think what you can see in those products like the new max logo or amazon prime or bing is that these pieces of software are made with no taste whatsoever how are they gonna understand the media landscape or what's good or not in defense of no taste i remember the good product of the week 
And it is, I think, in some ways defined by its lack of taste. And so feeling as a Commonwealth citizen or ex-Commonwealth citizen, I needed to catch up on the coronation. I headed over to the Daily Mail homepage. The Daily Mail is remarkable. And the thing is, is that I didn't even need to go beyond the homepage to get everything I wanted. Alex, you'd be a fan. They have these sort of salacious story length headlines. You don't have to read beyond them. Every video almost is a video loop. Every photo is a video loop. They annotate photographs with circles and little arrows in a very tasteless way. That's really effective. They have these super long captions on every photo that tells you exactly what you need to know without yeah. going into the story. And then inside of that sort of crazy maelstrom, advertising fights for attention from the cheap seats left and right of the content. I love that. Skins never went away at the Daily Mail. Skins are alive and yeah. well at the Daily Mail. Well, they know who they are. That's what I think they I love They just know who the they Daily are. Mail. They know who they are, but they also give you the goods. They just give it all to you. They give you the media you want. Yeah. They give you the picture of the killer's mother. You want that shit. Yeah. And you get and, a double rack of tabula. I mean, that's just how And then they circle the two Charles's two sons in the crowd and they circle them and say, look how far apart they are. What did, what's his face whisper when he kissed his father's cheek at the coronation? Like they give you the stuff and they throw it at you in a big nasty package. Yeah. And literally, it's just all there. It's a good product. Yeah. And there's 95 ad trackers that are fired at you. And there's 14 different like autoplay videos going on at once. It's total, it's it's beyond chaos. It's in the bath salts like territory. But like, I think if you deliver the goods, I don't think the interface matters as much. I don't know if this goes against last week's. No, I think this interface is the way it is because it works. Yeah. Because it's kind of a straight to the vein tabloid version on the internet. That's what tabloid looks like on the internet and hasn't changed much and sure I, I just looked at it and feel bad but i guess it works <laughs> and i got i guess it gives all the <laughs> ex-media execs like gets really yeah. excited about how much many ads they're selling and yeah, yeah how much time they're wasting of people's lives but it's like it's, a pop uh, it's great it's great might make you feel sick but yes i, I will probably get mental diarrhea now after having consumed <laughs> that <laughs> but good choice good choice troy brought it home full that circle full circle yeah people are pining for the return of the homepage. You know? What do you think? <laughs> I think it's ridiculous. <laughs> I, it's not coming back. I don't know the future. I definitely don't know the future. I'm fairly certain people are not going to be firing up the web browser and like typing in the URL to news sites in large numbers. No. I think the interface is going to have to normalize around, I'm reading an article, it's the same interface. I'm watching a movie, it's the same interface. I don't need to learn new things. And if you make me learn something new, I'm just going to ask the AI to bypass it and learn it for me. There's no reason why in a year's time I should be like opening the HBO app, remembering where the fucking show was rather than just it knowing what I want to play. They'll build moats around that. Netflix doesn't allow Apple TV to kind of access its content so you can do that. But people are going to get sick and tired of that stuff. I would like maybe like to make an episode on like this concept of People get used to things and then they become so normalized that any business that doesn't follow that trend gets pushed aside. And I think sometimes why Troy thinks I consume media like a 19-year-old is because I'm an early adopter. I'm consuming media the way everybody will in like a year's time or two. I'm not even that early. I think you're terrific. I really do. I only commented on it because I took it seriously, Alex. So let's stop doing that maybe. You wrote it, dude. <laughs> I wasn't offended or anything. I, I liked it. I just said you should have yeah. named me because I'm like linked my Twitter account. Yeah. 
I'm losing Twitter follower here. Really? Well, yeah. ever since Twitter's dying. It's a media podcast, and I think it's only fitting that we end on some kind of media thought or question or something that you're thinking about on that front. And I would have to say that after several weeks of very, very dire news coming out of the industry that I love and that I spent a lot of time in, which is digital media, clearly BuzzFeed News was the bookend of something. And in the last couple of days, I remember interviewing Shane Smith in front of the entire Hearst Corporation at his peak, talking about how Vice was going to disrupt the world and it would be worth more than Disney and all this stuff. And to see it drop into bankruptcy and take by the lenders for spare change against against all of these other media companies that while they may not be thriving traditional media companies like the Hearst magazine business that I used to run or Condé Nast or even trusted media brands owners of Reader's Digest Bonnie has done an amazing job with that business the traditional media companies are still standing. The boldest upstart, whether it sort of choked on its own hubris or not, are in bankruptcy. It's an interesting contrast and, and good to ask you, Brian, why? why? About why that the upstarts did not? And that's an entirely different podcast. That's a cliffhanger, dude. Ta -ta -ta. Cliffhanger. Stay tuned for next week's episodes. Yeah, yeah I mean, revenge Why? in traditional media is well, great because I brought this up on an earlier podcast today, and Peter. Kafka all my good ideas like, come for you. Yeah, yeah Peter Kafka was like, ah, they're not doing great either. We'll start next episodes with our previously on. All right, let's wrap it up there. All right, thank you. 